Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles. And this week, I have finally dug in a friend to do a show we've been trying to do for, I don't know, a year, something like that. Something like that. (laughs) Something like that. So, Anna, do you want to kind of introduce yourself and all the different stuff you're in the middle of, and then we'll sort of dive into this one. Hey, yes. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jim. I'm really excited we finally got to do this. Uh, Yes, I am Anna Bartolucci. I'm a clinical psychologist and behavioral sleep medicine specialist. So by day, I help people sleep without drugs. And by night, I have a not-so-secret other life as Cecilia Dominic, USA Today bestselling steampunk and urban fantasy author. When I introduce myself at conventions, I say that uh, my books keep readers turning the pages all night. So is it a conflict of interest or a business plan? Up to you. And I have recently combined my two loves of creativity and psychology into Psych Up Academy. So online courses and coaching to help high achievers get out of their own way and fulfill their creative dreams. So, you know, we've been talking about this for a while because I think it's it's not it's not the worst kept, kept secret in the industry, but pretty close that, you know, sleep and I are not necessarily always <laughs> the best of friends. Mm-hmm. That I tend to not sleep a whole lot to start with. Um, but I've kind of always been that way. You know, it's not a it's not a matter of insomnia or anything like that. It's just, OK, I get my four or five in and let it roll. Mm-hmm. What do you see in terms of how how does sleep impact just in general creativity, productivity, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's it's an interesting relationship. Uh, but first, you know, one thing that you mentioned is that, okay, so you're what we would call a short sleeper, which, you know, some of us might consider that a lucky thing to do because honestly, I need eight or nine. And my husband, interestingly, only he's probably more of like a seven hour sleeper. And so if he sleeps my schedule, like when we travel, he will often have insomnia after the third or fourth night because he's been sleeping too much and has a surplus. So it is possible for that to happen. But of course, you know, people have read a certain book by a certain colleague of mine called Why We Sleep, and they get completely freaked out that if they don't get eight hours of sleep every night, they're going to stop functioning, develop dementia, and die tomorrow. So, yeah, I like to to make sure that people know that, okay, so the NIH, National Institute for Health, recommends that adults get between seven and nine hours of sleep. Some people can sleep safely, you know, outside of that. It's a, it's a bell curve. There are tails. So... You know, I have had a lot of patients who have developed insomnia because they have been spending more time in bed trying to get those eight hours of sleep that they are not capable of. So, yeah, that can that can definitely lead to issues. Um, you know, in your case, you would probably also say, well, you might want to talk to a sleep specialist just in case because four to five hours really is below normal. But I mean, I don't know that you have uh, I have ever known you to do anything normally. So there's that. And <laughs> You yeah. know, I'm just, it, my species <laughs> has not come back to pick me back up and take me home yet. I don't, I don't know what to tell you yeah. about that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it, basically I'll run on, I, I do need more now. And I mean, post, post plague, that's one of those things I can say is I do need more mm-hmm. than I used to. And also getting a little older, you know, I need mm-hmm. a little more than I used to, but it's also not uncommon for me to be able to go and run, you know, run on my four or five. 
then I'll sleep for a day or two where it's okay. I get my seven or eight and then I can go mm-hmm. back to my normal sort of schedule. But it's also not uncommon for me to get up in the middle of the night and go work on something for a bit and then go back to bed or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it sounds like you manage. So that's good. So we'll uh, see when I go crazy or, or, or lose the <laughs> sanity I have. But there you go. Normal human being. Yes. Uh, but then as for sleep and creativity, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize until they're trying to do something creative is just how much in terms of mental resources that creativity does require. I mean, yes, it's fun. Yes, it's relaxing, but it still requires things like focus and it requires the, I don't really like the word discipline, but you know, it requires being able to make yourself sit down and at least get started, which is where a lot of people get tripped up. So, you know, if you're sleeping, if you have a well-rested brain, you're better able to do those things. You're also able to make those interesting connections that are so important for creativity because the mind is in a better problem-solving base. And I think another interesting thing that a lot of people don't think about is that creativity, uh, we need to both use our emotions, but then also get out of our way in in a sense, or get the emotions out of the way, like the imposter syndrome and the things that come up with that. And so Sleep also helps us to better put things in perspective. And that's because the brain is an organ just like a lot of other things. It just happens to be like a massive jello organ. But it's, you know, it needs its rest just like everything else. So I'm going to throw a fun question out there because I know that this is actually a large kind of internal debate. What is sleep? Ah, well, that's Timothy Mouse's answer. Um yeah, when I do my trainings on sleep, it we start off with, yeah, we haven't really got a good definition. So we know that it's different from being awake. We know that it's you know, not the same thing as being in a coma. Uh, it's a state of being somewhat disconnected from the outside world. Uh, and it's not necessarily that the brain is less active. It's differently active. And so you might get less activity in like the frontal lobes, that part of the brain that, you know, is what kind of makes us human, uh, but, you know, animals have as well. Uh, And we end up with more activity in like the other, the quote unquote, more primitive parts of the brain as we are working through stuff. But of course, that also depends on the stages of sleep, too. So we just know that it's different. Brain waves of sleep look different from brain's waves of being awake. Brain imaging asleep looks different from brain imaging of being awake. We basically know that bad things happen if we don't get enough of it. But yeah, that's really, really hard to pin down a good definition. So I, this is one of those things, because again, I've, I've always had an interesting, tenuous relationship with sleep. Um where I'm one of those people, I don't really like to sleep. It's one of those things of I recognize it as a necessity, whereas my spouse loves sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she's getting older, she's needing less of it. And mm-hmm. you know, I think you guys even talked about that a little bit at Larry Dragon Con. But uh, you know, looking at it and looking at how different friends of mine react different ways, looking at different things I've done professionally over the years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because I've never exactly run on what most people would consider a normal schedule just by all the various things I've done. 
when we look at and think about the idea of sleep and productivity, you know, again, it's, it's, do you have whatever it takes to, to op, to run up, right? Mm-hmm. Having certain levels of sleep, certain levels of rest definitely is a factor in running out. I, I can tell definitively when I am and when I'm not. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your practice, when you're working with patients, when you're working through that process, what does that look like for you? And what are you looking for to tell whether or not somebody is in that right space or not? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, when people come to my office, to my practice, basically what they want me to do is make them be able to fall asleep within five minutes of their heads hitting the pillow and then sleep for eight hours straight and then wake up feeling ready to take on the world. And, you know, that's not usually what, where we end up because of course, you know, different people need different amounts of sleep. It's normal for adults to wake up during the night. The hope is that you wake up and then it's brief and you go back to sleep. Um, and we all need different amounts of sleep on different nights. And so We'll often get to a point of asking, okay, well, you're getting, let's say you're getting seven hours of sleep and it doesn't really look your body needs anymore. It's not allowing you to get any more. So how are you feeling during the day? How are you functioning? How are you focusing? And that's more what you're getting to is like, yeah, that is more of the optimal state. So what are the what are the main reasons that people actually would come and talk to you, right, in terms of this idea? What are kind of some of the common sort of sleep problems? You know, who's coming to you? What are what are the issues they're running into? I mean, again, there have been times when I've had problems with insomnia, but largely that's because of me running on, okay, what time zone am I in? Travel, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff that happens, right? It's not necessarily insomnia as much as it is just the okay. Wh- where am I? Where's my body at? Because one of the things that will will tick her off is because I can hop on a plane and instantly go to sleep, or I've learned <laughs> sleep almost anywhere. Because if I hadn't, there are times I would have gotten none. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I recognize that I don't function like most people do. So what mm-hmm. are people coming to you for? What are, what are the kind of the common things that people run into? So the most common thing I hear from, well, it, it varies by age group. So I do see people from uh, 15 up to, you know, I've had patients of 90 plus. I haven't had any 100-year-olds yet, but who knows? So the younger ones typically have problems falling asleep. And so they'll go to bed and they'll just lay there for hours. Or they'll realize they're not going to go to sleep and so they'll get up, but then they'll be up until like two or three o'clock in the morning. And part of that is circadian rhythm. So as you alluded to, yes, we have internal clocks and young people, their internal clocks are often set later than the rest of the world wants it to be. So we'll work on circadian rhythm issues and we'll also work on, you know, bed sleep association issues. And then as people get older, it's more that they wake up and they can't go back to sleep. But one of the universal complaints I hear from all ages is I can't sleep because my mind is racing. And so that is something that we often end up tackling as well. And it's interesting because a lot of that does get resolved as we are doing the behavioral things for sleep. As I was explaining it to a patient, it's like, okay, we can't control what your mind does, but we can 
set things up so that it's more likely to be able to wind down or we can kind of get around some of that anxiety through some other methods. So what are some of the kind of the, the common best practices or things that people just can do normally that would help, you know, help getting better sleep, getting more sleep, getting, you know, getting through some of the common kind of common issues. What are some of the, like, mm -hmm. the things you would normally recommend people try or do is developing better habits than what I have? <laughs> yeah. So often uh, what I will recommend at the end of the initial evaluation session uh, so I'll have people keep sleep diaries for a couple of hours for a couple of weeks, but then I'll be like, okay, let's just go after some of the, the easier stuff. So first is narrow your wake up time range to just an hour, you know, out there you hear to get up at the same time every single morning, but for a lot of people, especially if they have long commutes, that's not really realistic. So it's okay. Maybe just have that be an hour. So you get up at six o'clock during the week, seven o'clock during the weekends. Uh, for road wires like you, of course, it's a little bit trickier. Uh, and then also on the other end, make sure you have a wind down routine that does not involve screens. And so you, know, you can watch screens up to within an hour of bedtime, but then that last hour does need to be screen free for a couple of reasons. First, screens, even though we say they're relaxing, they are stimulating, uh, especially for workaholics. Who can't put their laptops down. And <laughs> I saw you smart. Uh, also, the blue light coming off our screens keeps our brain from releasing its own melatonin. And what a lot of people don't understand about melatonin is that the brain releases it all at once. And so if you're doing something to dampen that, then it's not like you're going to get another chance. And that's what tells our body that, hey, it is now time to start shifting to sleep. And plus, we're all behavioral creatures. So if we do the same set of things every night before we go to bed, the body might learn, hey, this is one of the things or it's time to start shifting into sleep mode. So for, and again, I sort of laugh because I'm better about it than I used to be. Um Looking at things, I mean, again, I try, I, I'm trying to get better about the screen habits and things like that, because again, I like to read, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's one of those things that we do, right? The, the difference between reading from a physical book and reading from a screen is a very different experience, right? Mm -hmm. What are people going to experience the difference between the two? Because like you say, you like to, you know, come by the book, read all night and then go straight to sleep, right? Uh, but what does that mean for the difference between people that are screen readers and then e-readers? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there, there are differences. So screen readers, so for example, if you're reading on a tablet, a backlit tablet, uh, like my mother refuses to stop reading on her iPad. Uh, and she's always up in the middle of the night unloading the dishwasher. So I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> That's what you want to do. So uh, even though you can turn it to black background and put it on night shift, there is still enough light getting through that it's stimulating the brain. And even if you don't have any trouble falling asleep, it can still come bite you in the ass later. I have seen tens of thousands of sleep diaries at this point that tell that story. Reading on an e-reader is a little bit different as long as you have an e-reader that 
you can turn the light all the way down on. Like I have a Kindle Oasis and at least the model I have, you can make all of the backlight go away, which is great. So that's fine. Um, I'm not sure what other ones you can, uh, you can do that. Uh, paper white, unfortunately not quite, you can't quite make the light go away. And even though it's you know, shining in from the side, it can still negatively impact sleep. But yeah, reading on paper, even if you have a light beside you, it's still not going to be that blue wavelength, that 420 to 480 nanometers that's going to wreck your sleep. So before we shift into some of the other fun fun stuff like that, what are the things that, if nothing else, you want to tell people in terms of the importance of sleep, how to approach it, you know, any thoughts like even on meditation, things like that for, for mm -hmm. some of those practices? Yeah, meditation is a whole other, a whole yeah, other I'm topic. Nowhere. <laughs> but so. I mean, for me, it's one of those routines I've used for a lot of years in terms of travel is mm -hmm. it's the way I program myself of, okay, it's now time to shut down and do this. And there's routines I can use that most of the time will let me do that regardless of what time zone I'm in or where I started mm -hmm. my day or where I ended my day or, or things like that. I mean, it's a routine that's worked for me, but what are the things that you think we ought to look at or talk about approach things like that? In terms of things to incorporate into routines or what do you what do you think people need to know or consider or contemplate just about their routines, how they approach how they approach everything? Uh, how they approach everything. Yeah, that's a one one universal answer for everything. Okay. <laughs> uh remind I guess remember that every single cell in your body has its is hooked into your circadian rhythm and it reflects your circadian rhythm. And so the more consistent you can make your circadian rhythm, the overall healthier you will be. And so that does encompass things like minimizing your wake time variability because our circadian rhythm will often anchor, or that's typically where it anchors at wake up time. Also, you know, managing light, getting more light earlier in the day, less blue light later, also helps feed into the circadian rhythm. And the one thing a lot that I hear from so many of my patients is that they don't eat breakfast. And so that is often one of those initial recommendations that I'll make, which is eat something within an hour of waking. You know, eat something, get natural light. And the eating, it doesn't have to be something thick. You know, if you're doing, for example, intermittent fasting, you know, you can sneak in a hard boiled egg without causing an insulin spike. Or if you don't feel like eating a lot in the morning, fine. Have like one of my patients today was she has a protein shake first thing in the morning. But you know, definitely something more than just your coffee and cream. So kind of shifting modes a little bit. You know, one of the things that's always interesting to me is most of the writers, most of the creators I know, right? It's being making a living as a creative can be hard. Right. Mm -hmm. to make, you know, to make that kind of a living. And most people I know, you know, we've got our day gigs. We've got the things that we do, plus all the creative work that we do. Right. Is mm -hmm. so for you. How do you balance the two? What's, you know, it being both in healthcare, being a practitioner, seeing people all day long, seeing kind of all those challenges and things that come up during the day and then approach the creative life. 
writing books, writing, you know, and getting into that side of things. How does that kind of balance and equate for you? Yeah, that has been, I'll admit that has been a challenge during my entire creative career. And I got, I got my first book contract 10 years ago. So one thing I had to realize is that not all of the advice that is out there will work for everybody. So for example, how many times have you heard, well, if you're going to be an author, if you're going to be a professional writer, you have to get up and write first thing in the morning. Yeah, I tried that for a long time and my circadian rhythm is set slightly later. So that absolutely did not work for me. Also, there is the advice out there that you have to write every single day. You have to be really consistent. And I've come to realize that I have a creative ebb and flow, but I'm typically way more creative and productive in that way the first half of the year. And then the second half of the year, I hit a bit of a slump. And so I've had to start paying more attention to that, to that seasonal variation. Uh, so you know, when I'm on a deadline, like I've got that full staff contract I've been working on, you know, I'll often end up working and writing after dinner. So I'll typically get home and late dinner between seven and eight, depending on if I've gone to the gym. And then I will work on creative stuff between eight and nine and then, or, you know, nine thirty, pushing it sometimes and then screens off and then bed between 1030 and 11. And so it's been discovering my own rhythm and my own way of being creative that has actually made it work for me, which interestingly has meant that I have ended up tossing a lot of the advice out of the window. So, and this is one of those things that I, I, I always like to throw out there is this idea of what is the impact of your creative output and your creative life on your professional life? You know, what's the value of it there? What's, how does that affect your ability to work with patients and run your practice? Oh, I love this. This is one of my favorite questions that nobody ever asked. So I'll give you an example. I believe that being a professional creative has helped me to be a way better psychotherapist. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a patient and she was trying to make herself do something that she had been procrastinating doing. And so... I was like, okay, let's figure out how to make it fun for you. So this person likes those true crime podcasts. And so, okay, let's say that doing this thing is, it's going to be a podcast. So it's going to be the mystery of, you know, blank. I think she was working on many such like the mystery of the bleeding budget. Like, why is this, you know, where are you bleeding your money? And so she came up with a concept for it. She came up for a title with a title for it. And so when I saw her again this past week, she said she'd make great progress. And that was what had helped her to hook her, what had helped to hook her with it. So, and then she knows about my not so secret of her life, other life. She said, you must be an author. I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? So, yeah, I think it helps me to be more creative with motivating people and also helping people how, helping people to figure out how to make things work for them. Well, one of the things that that I always, when I'm I'm working with people and trying to develop people and that sort of thing is, do you have a creative outlet, right? What is it you have 
that kind of gives that greater meaning to life, right? I mean, it, you know, because I write fiction, I do nonfiction, I do all all sorts of things. I get to go play with glass and play with fire periodically. Mm. I mean, but those creative exercises, those things that I go through and do allow me to look at things differently. It allows me to go about mm-hmm. problem solving differently. It allows me to look at relationships differently, business relationships, how, how we deal with conflict and things like this, right? So for you, I mean, does it give you different ways of looking at and interacting with patients, much like the case you're talking about here, which is you you look at the storytelling aspect of it, right? Because mm-hmm. I have a firm belief that the thing that really binds most things together is our love and need for story as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, are you finding that maybe sometimes telling stories is a way of connecting to people, to patients better? Yes. And also, you know, in psychotherapy, we talk a lot about the stories that people tell themselves and how that perpetuates problems. And so, yeah, helping people change stories and being able to do so in creative ways definitely helps them to uh, to move forward. And yeah, it, it definitely helps them to connect. And then there is also a type of treatment for nightmares called imagery rehearsal therapy, where we have people record their dreams and then we have them change the story of the dream and then focus on that, which then reduces the intensity and frequency of nightmares. And so that's directly going in and changing stories. And so I love it when people come to me with nightmares because like, okay, this is going to be fun. So now anybody who's having nightmares, go ahead and bring them <laughs> in to Anna and yep. you can we'll be held accountable. It might make its way into a book. Um, uh, so when, you know, one of the things that for me, the act of writing has long done is allow me to look at process situations, process things going on professionally, mm-hmm. personally. What impact from your aspect, do you see that creativity has in terms of mental health, just overall? Oh, I think, yeah, I think it's huge. Basically, engaging in creative acts, it's a way for us to do intentionally and externally basically what our brains do when we're dreaming. Processing through things, problem solving, working through things. Uh, So, for example, my Ether Psychic series when I was first writing Eros Element, I was going through my own grief process over something. And yeah, I think it was, oh, that's right. Yeah, because I had lost my beloved tuxedo cat, Bailey. And so the the hero's name is Edward Bailey. So I got to memorialize him. But then also the heroine was going through her own grief process. Her father has died, but she can't tell anybody because it will, you know, Victorian mourning and all and demands and all of that stuff so you know when you're mourning a pet it's something that a lot of people if they're not pet lovers they don't understand and so it's not really something that you can talk a lot about but that was working through it in eris element really it was really comforting and cathartic for me so i think you know something like that has made it into very many of my books so do then is there value to people to find that creative outlet Mm -hmm. it's a part of 
overall mental health? I mean, are there things that you would recommend people look at doing that can help? Yeah, and it's going to be, it might be different for, of course, it's going to be different for different people. And of course, a lot of people are also going to say, but I'm not creative. How does that apply to me? And it's more of, well, you know, what is something that you enjoy and can you make it creative? So, for example, for some people, maybe playing fantasy football is their creative outlet because, you know, it does involve strategy and problem solving and, you know, fantasy is in the name. So you're able to actually control what these athletes are doing rather than just yelling at them through your television screen. So, yeah, it can be, I would say, um, <laughs> as my cat is trying too bad at my pen. Um, yeah, it's. You have to be creative about finding your creative outlet. It doesn't. It's not necessarily drawing or painting or writing or glass blowing. Yeah, I mean, I've told people that that creative output can be as simple as easy as cooking. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways that in the basics of life you can you can find different creative outlets and creative outputs that aren't necessarily. I'm trying to do it as part of a commercial work. It's mm -hmm. just that, that expression. So for you, when you look at your other not so secret personality, mm -hmm. um, you know, Cecilia Dominic, how do you, how do you balance the, cause I mean, I can, you know, I write under a number of different names and, and person personas or whatnot. How do you balance which you is in play at the time and how different are the two of you? I would say before I turned 40, the two of me were different. I think Cecilia Dominic was a bit more outgoing. She was a bit more, I don't care what people necessarily think about me personally. Of course, I care what they think about my books, but it was uh, it was almost uh, like an id personality. Like I didn't have to, it's like, well, it's not really me, so I can actually do what I want, not have to worry about consequences. But then, of course, since I turned 40, uh, yeah, uh, my, my two personas have definitely merged so yeah, no when people when people talk to me they are talking to both so let's talk about the other part of you then the cecilia dominic mm -hmm. what got you started into writing i have written since i was two apparently like according to my mother i dictated a story to her when i was two and apparently it was about a bunny and what it lacked in plot and character development, it more than made up for an enthusiasm. Uh, I have I have yet to actually see the story, but apparently that's when I started. And I, I wrote like all the way through like grade school, high school, college. Uh, creative writing has always been my uh, my escape, my go to, my fun. And you remember, uh, you're a little bit older than I am, but like remember in. Um, in elementary school to, to learn the letters, they had the, the blank spot on the top of the brown pieces of paper for the picture that you could draw and then the uh, the lines for the letters underneath it. I loved those things because I love both drawing and writing. Yes, back in my day, we would pull out the papyrus. <laughs> okay, well, you know, that's what I thought you were just, you know, having your you know, early chiseling lessons. Yeah, I mean, it was... It's one of those things that was hard, really hard to erase that off the stone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so at what point did you decide to go from creative writing as a creative outlet then to trying to sell work? 
it was when I was in grad school and I had encountered one of those sort of career direction uh, changing setbacks. And I was in a bookstore doing some retail therapy and I came across an issue of Writer's Digest. And of course, you know, when you're in graduate school, you're trying to do research articles and get those published. And so I picked up Writer's Digest and I leaked through it and I was like, holy crap, people actually get paid to write? You know, mind blown. What? So that's when I started trying to sell, uh, sell short stories. And um, didn't really have much luck for several years because, you know, even though I'd written short stories my entire life, you know, still had a lot to learn. But eventually I did. I won a short story contest in 2010 from a small publisher. They didn't uh, end up wanting the book I sent them. I actually finished my first novel in 2004-ish, I think. Uh, and that was one that ended up getting me my first book contract almost nine years later after many, 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 many revisions. So you got to learn to love rejection. Yes. How do you go about learning to love rejection? Because that's part of the key of being a writer, mm -hmm. being an artist is that idea of a lot of the time getting that sale is right place, right time after having thrown a lot of things at the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is definitely appreciating that, that so much of it is out of your control. Like one of the reasons I got my first book contract is because it's set in the Ozark Mountains and that is where my editor was based. And she hadn't seen any books set in the Ozark Mountains. I mean, she also liked the rest of the book, but it was really the setting that made her interested. I guess made her interested to read all of it. And yeah, you just never know. So, I mean, I also believe like when I'm uh, in my critique group and they're giving me feedback and some of it is, you know, not positive feedback. I'm like, okay, thanks guys. Cause I'd rather hear it from you than from, you know, an Amazon reviewer or from an editor. And I guess it's perspective because it's like, you know, once you've been through a dissertation defense, <laughs> you've got a really high bar for what sucks. <laughs> uh, and it's also just like, okay, um, emotion regulation. Yeah, it sucks in the moment. Let it go. Move on. Try again. Make Gamify it. That often helps. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not recommending that you pay for your bathroom with the rejections because I think that would probably be not great for your mental health. But, you know, it's like, okay, after after 10, I guess you go buy a piece of cake. It's like a punch card. On your 10th rejection, you get to go satisfy yourself with unhealthy food. Exactly. Well, that being the case, you know, looking at over time, I mean, this is one of those things that it fundamentally becomes a thing of the act of writing has to be a reward into and of itself. Mm -hmm. And yet, if once you make that decision, you want to start sharing it with people, right? That that can be one of the most terrifying things that anybody can do, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, when, when we look at the list of great fears, public speaking is on is on the top of that list. I one of those things that to me has always kind of been that is, is that movement between I'm going to write something and now I'm going to publish it. What are people going to think about it? What are people going to say about it? So how do you handle 
both good and bad feedback once a book hits the world. Mm. Yeah, no, I will admit that the negative reviews thing a little bit, but I'm not one who's going to go and avoid them because sometimes they do make good points and they do offer areas for improvement. So again, it's putting it in perspective. Like, okay, this is a, this is subjective feedback. You know, often, um, you know, when people are writing reviews, I'm like, did you really actually read the book that I wrote? <laughs> um, you know, and sometimes it's been helpful. Like I got, you know, when Eros Element, their first edition, uh, people complained that it started too slowly. So I went through and cut a bunch from the front and, you know, it didn't hurt the story. Kind of didn't really make the prequel novella hook in as well, but oh, well. And, you know, it overall improved the product. I mean, I think that's one of the advantages we have as independent publishers is that if we're getting the same negative feedback over and over and over again, then we can actually go in and fix it fairly easily rather than if we were traditionally published, we have to go through the process and the layers and the approval and all of that stuff. So looking at kind of the, the, the great scheme of life and looking at all the, the moving pieces and everything else, what are the things that that you have found the most rewarding about writing and creativity? Well, I will have to admit that I love it when people come up to me and tell me how much they love my books. That's like somebody actually fangirled over me at Dragon Con. And I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. You know, it took me 10 years to get there, but I finally got I finally got fangirled. Um yeah. So, you know, it's where I find that, you know, externally that people have read my books and it's made a difference for them. Like actually one of my early Dragon Cons, it was the year that the alt history track ended up being over in the America's Mart because the whatever the hell it's called now was under construction. And um, yeah, and somebody came up to me and said, the lycanthropy files is like, those are my go-tos. Like just when I need to escape, it's like, I have read that series so many times and I'm like, Oh, yeah. My books help somebody to, you know, do what books have done for me, which is to escape, which is, you know, it's given me comfort. Um, internally, I love it when I'm writing and my brain drops something in there and I'm like, Hmm, I don't know what the purpose of that is, but we'll just leave it in there. And if it doesn't make sense later, we'll take it out. And then invariably, you know, even if it's in maybe another book, my brain, that it makes sense. And I'm like, oh, thank you, brain. That's, you know, just that that creative magic when that happens. Or like when I'm in that creative flow and the words are just coming and it's more like I'm just writing what I'm witnessing rather than it feeling like I'm generating it myself. That's almost like a channeling experience. That's also really super rewarding. So let's... What's your latest series? Let's talk to everybody about that, what they need to go pick up and be added to that to be red pile. So what is your latest series? Uh, the latest series, the one that I just finished is The Fae Files. And so in it, an exiled Fae princess has one chance to return home. She has to solve a mystery at the Center for Paranormal Disease Control. However, as we all know, Fae bargains are loaded with tricks. So uh, it's not going to be that easy. So where, where do people need to start and who are they going to be hanging out with in that series? 
Uh, they need to start with book one, The Shadow Project. They're going to immediately meet Reyna, who is our exiled fey princess. Oh, you'll like this. So uh, she and her brother were exiled after spying on the Battle of Culloden. And so it's been a while. Mm-hmm. And so she's been living among the humans. And so through the series, she's trying to figure out, okay, how much of me is still fey? How much of me has been influenced by the humans? Do I really have fey morality? And then there is also a love interest who is a gargoyle, Lawrence, and his father was killed by a fae, and so he's made it his life's work. He's also a veterinarian, but he's, you know, he's been studying the fae to see if he can figure out who killed his father, and so he considers himself an expert. So in the first book, they're butting heads because he uh, basically face blames her, which really pisses her off. And so it's you know it's humor, it's mystery, it's thriller it's you know definitely urban fantasy and it's uh set here in atlanta so before we wrap stuff up you've got a series of workshops coming up Mm -hmm. uh what are they and how can people find out more about them ah yes thank you so this is through psych up academy i will be speaking as part of a few seminars coming up uh there's a mindset seminar coming up uh in about a little over a week and uh, you can find out more about that on my LinkedIn. I'll see speaking as part of the Alliance for Independent Authors and then another uh, a seminar workshop that's uh, as part of a, a different writing organization. But if you are not a member of any of those, you want to make it easy, you can come to my direct to you workshop on October 18th. It's called Punch Through Procrastination. Stop beating yourself up and start living your fulfilling creative and other projects so that will be october 18th at two o'clock and i will give you the registration link for the show notes excellent so what have we not hit on today that you think we need to talk about a little bit Hmm. Well, you know, I have definitely been as part of my creative work personally and also professionally really looking into procrastination, which because that's something that so many writers struggle with. And don't, so, don't you know that, yeah. that part of writing means you're sitting there going down a, a research rabbit hole that you're never going to use any of that information? <laughs> yeah, that, that is definitely part of the process. However, you know, if that ends up being your whole process, you've got a problem. But yeah, and, you know, people think procrastination is just like this very simple surface level behavior. But, you know, now that I've been working, well, I've been giving procrastination talks to writers actually for over 10 years now. Started back with the Georgia Romance Writers. And then it ended up being an even better research chapter in Better Sleep for the Overachiever, which is one of my nonfiction books. And then, yeah, I turned it into a workshop and then an entire course. And so... You know, I've mentioned the importance of knowing what rules work for you, flexibility. And so that's basically my point with it is that, you know, a lot of the advice out there makes a lot of incorrect assumptions, including that there is a system that will work for everyone. And so what I teach people to do is to first identify the tools that work for them and then create a system that will is both flexible and built on self-compassion. Because let's be honest, the more we beat ourselves up for procrastinating, the more we do it. It doesn't help. 
Well, Anna, I'm glad we finally got to do part one. We're going to have to come back and do a part two and just talk about procrastination one of these Definitely. Days. <laughs> We've only been putting this off for a year, so we can put that one off for another week or two. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Yeah, you can just um, fuss at my husband in the bar for difficulty scheduling again. <laughs> well, if, if that's what it takes is to make it buy us a drink every time you, you, you know, you're at <laughs> <laughs> But where can people find you professionally and where can they find your Cecilia Dominic you? All right. So professionally, they can find me at us, Atlanta Insomnia Behavioral Health Services. And if you have sleep problems and are in the United States, we uh, do have two, almost three SIPAC providers, which means that we can do telehealth with people across state lines as long as they're in a SIPAC state, which is now most of them. And that website is sleepyinvatl.com. You can find more about me and my books at ceciliadominic.com. And that's C-E-C-I-L-I-A, Dominic.com. And then as for my procrastination stuff, you can find me at, I'm trying to remember, what, sorry, I should have left up the link. I believe it is, uh, you can join the email list and take the what kind of procrastinator are you quiz at bit.ly slash i believe it's procrastination hyphen podcast but i will double check that and uh, give it to you for your show notes excellent well i'm glad you came out to hang out with me for an afternoon yes and, thank you uh, be good to see you again in person really soon and other yep. than that i think it's time for me to go take a nap all right yeah that's a little close to bedtime but you do you And until next week, this has been Creating Pros. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Bye.